Creative Collisions with Second Home. A hundred years ago, a group of badass women made it their mission to create a healthier democracy, one based on equality and fairness. But how did their creativity and ingenuity help them reach this lofty goal? Welcome to Creative Collisions, the podcast where we celebrate creative diversity, bringing you conversations with great talents from different industries, direct from Second Home. I'm Rohan Silver. Today you're going to be hearing from the historian and author, Diane Atkinson. Diane visited us at Second Home in Spitalfields to discuss her book, Rise Up Women, The Remarkable Lives of the Suffragettes. The book's a collective biography of over a hundred suffragettes who each took part in the campaign to get women the vote. And it offers us a really beautiful glimpse into the personal lives of these women and the incredible sacrifices they made for the greater good. We're living through a moment in time that obviously is very different to the battle for votes for women. You know, there have been great steps forward since then. But I think this last year or two has made everyone, certainly me, sort of realise actually there's still so much to fight for and you know maybe there's an attitude and an iconoclasm and a courage that the suffragettes had that is still as relevant today as it was a hundred years ago. Given that the topic today is all about the history of women in the UK we thought it was a good idea to pair up Diane with the very wonderful Moya Crockett who's the women's editor at Stylist magazine. So you'll be hearing from Moya a bit later on But to start with, Diane told us about how her book, Rise Up Women, came to be. The book Rise Up Women is really the culmination of quite a lot of years of curating and writing about the suffragettes. I'd written about their militancy. I'd written about their marketing, how they invented political marketing and merchandising. And then I got to wonder about who they were, because I hadn't really considered the women behind the stories very much at all. So this book represents um, it's a collective biography of 200 women. And these women all made really important contributions to the struggle for the vote, the militant struggle for the vote. And I was really curious about what their backgrounds were, cross-class, all around the country. But I was also really interested in their, their mums and dads, their sisters, their brothers, their uncles, their aunties, their family groups, where they worked because all of these factors are at play to make it possible or not for women to become suffragettes. You couldn't really be one unless your family was broadly supportive or didn't mind too much, certainly, because it was such a unique style of campaigning. It was direct action. It was so unpopular. It was so outrageous. It was so shocking. It was so outlandish. It was so insistent. It was so persistent that you really had to have supportive parents and sisters and brothers around you who could give you moral support and who could sometimes, when called on, give you physical protection because it's quite a tricky and dangerous thing to be a suffragette because most members of the British public were very hostile to the idea of women having the vote at all and certainly hostile to the women who were performing all kinds of outrageous acts of militancy in this very stubborn and determined way. 
That's what really intrigued me about the women who find their way into this book. We're lucky to live in a society that's been massively shaped by the actions taken a century ago by these amazing women, the suffragettes. And I think what's so relevant about Diane's work is that it gives us a really clear, uncensored insight into that historical moment and brings to life the women, the people involved in the movement. And by doing that, it helps bring home the lessons that can continue to set an example for us today. One of the most famous people that springs to mind when you're thinking about the suffragette movement is, of course, Emmeline Pankhurst and her remarkable family. Without doubt, the Pankhurst family were really very important indeed. They founded it, they inspired it, they were great charismatics. They had politics in their DNA. Mrs Pankhurst here went to her first political meeting when she was five. She married this interesting man called Richard Pankhurst, who was a radical barrister. He tried to become a feminist MP in the 1870s, which, as you can imagine, failed abysmally. But he didn't ever stop trying. He tried three times to become a feminist MP and never quite made it. But that didn't matter. He kept trying, and he was a wonderful man. He died very suddenly in 1898, and he left her with not much money because he was such a good man. He kept taking up radical causes. He was a barrister and not getting paid, so that was kind of awkward. It left them with very little money, and so she had to get a job. And in those days, it was just becoming possible for women to become registrars of births and deaths, not marriages. They weren't allowed to do marriages. So she, who had been talking about politics, talking about socialism, and talking about women's suffrage, in a kind of a, quite an abstract way, was suddenly confronted by women coming to register the births and deaths of their, their families. And here are the real people that she's been fighting for and talking about for quite a long time. She's able to meet women who are coming to record the births and deaths of their newborns, often in the same visit. And she's understanding what working class women's lives really for the first time. So that gives her a whole new impetus to really engage with the struggle for the vote in, in a completely different way. In 1903, she founds Women's Social and Political Union, and its slogan is deeds, not words, and that's all you need to know about the style of the campaign. Their view was, we've talked about this long enough, we're going to make it happen. So no more chat, we're going to force the government to give us the vote. And that energy and that kind of cockiness is the message that is persistent throughout the whole struggle from 1903 to the outbreak of the First World War. She's got two very clever daughters. Christabel actually had a first-class degree in law, but because she was a woman, she couldn't be a lawyer, obviously. And um, she becomes a political strategist for the WSPU, and she's brilliant. She's a brilliant speaker. Because one of the things about being a suffragette was you had to go out and do big public meetings. And that was a really scary proposition, you didn't get any police protection, so you needed your brothers to come and be there just in case. And it often got very ugly. Members of the public would throw horse dung at you, dead cats and dogs that were just left in the street, rotting fruit and vegetables, lumps of cold potatoes, anything. And they thought that was acceptable. So you'd be standing there trying to make a speech talking about why women needed the vote and all this would you know, rain in your direction. And it was a scary, unpleasant experience, but... It had to be done. Sylvia, a really good artist and designer, and she kind of creates the brand of the suffragette campaign. She designs great logos and exhibitions and banners, and she really gives them a very particular visual identity. So she's modern in that sense. So, you know, there's huge talent here. 
The Pankers were such an inspiring group of women that so many women wanted to join the organization to work with them. And it becomes a very sexy organization because they have so many different skills and talents and types of women who come to work together. So they're very important recruiters, actually, for the cause. What's really inspiring, I think, is that the suffragettes were a properly grassroots organization. And it was a movement that was helped by both men and women from totally different religious and economic backgrounds. And they all brought their unique talents and life experiences to the table. I really think this is something that is as relevant today as it was back then, especially given that we're still having big debates about diversity in the economy, in our society, and of course in the workplace. And what's cool is that the Pankhursts, who were pretty damn posh, had a similar commitment to diversity, especially when it came to empowering working-class women and giving them a big national platform. They're also very driven, really, in the first instance, to get the vote for working-class women. And their poster girl, their first close friend who joins the movement, is this young woman called Annie Kenny. And Annie Kenny joined the campaign in 1905, and she becomes a very senior member of the organisational hierarchy. And she's very important as a tool for reaching into working-class communities. Her reach is phenomenal. And they knew that, and they knew that if Annie Kenny could be involved in the campaign, she could broaden the class base of the movement, which was something they were very concerned about. That was their first priority. And she is often asked to dress up in her workwear that she'd worn before she joined the WSPU. She was a a mill worker in Oldham in a cotton mill. She'd worked from the age of eight as a half-timer, and then she'd become a full-time when she was 13. So she's got a lot of experience, she's got a lot of stories, she's got a lot of credentials to be able to talk to this really untapped resource as as membership for the WSPU, and she's very important. They would say, dress up in your mill clothes, put those clogs on, put that shawl round your head, wear your mill clothes, and just go and talk to women about our organisation and what the vote is going to mean for them. Some people think it's just middle-class women in London, but it's not. This is a nationwide organisation with members everywhere, with branches everywhere, with committee rooms everywhere, and with shops. Because the suffragettes are such great marketers and merchandisers, they are adding their slogan, Votes for Women, um, to all kinds of merchandise, like cigarettes. You can get Votes for Women cigarettes, and chocolates and tea, and, and, of course... Many things made in purple, white and green. All these things are going to be sold in their shops. So they're, they're brilliant at, you know, the commercial aspect, the commercialization of the message. Purple was for dignity and white was for purity and green was for hope for the future. And the idea was that you should wear the colours at all time if you could, but sometimes it's quite dangerous to do that. And the range of products that you can buy in this colour scheme is phenomenal. If you're really well off, you can have a car in purple, white and green, <laughs> painted and upholstered in the colours of the movement. You could buy clothes. All the London department stores were selling purple, white and green clothing, gowns, blouses, jackets, jumpers, hats, shoes and slippers. So it was a hugely successful and colourful enterprise. So this kind of political marketing or branding might seem pretty obvious right now, but at the time it really was revolutionary. And, you know, this creative approach to campaigning, I think is a great example of the relationship between social change and creativity. Because it's clear from 
Diane, that the branding and design of the suffragettes played a big, big part in bringing that organisation together, as well as inspiring others to take to the barricades. But let's be clear, these innovations were born out of necessity. The reality was that the suffragettes and the women they represented were vulnerable to serious abuse by the state. Well, of course, the suffragettes were being arrested by the police from the earliest days. Not so much for doing anything serious, but just because they were a damn nuisance. And the idea is they wanted to sweep them off the streets as far as possible. So from about 1906, through the campaign, the police handling of these events is going to become very hostile. The worst possible day of suffragette violence, violence against suffragettes, occurs on November the 18th, 1910. It's called Black Friday. Women have been waiting to hear if Asquith was going to let a bill go through for women to have a vote. No, of course, he wouldn't let that happen because he was never, ever intending to give women the vote. So groups of about a dozen women left their meeting in Caxton Hall to Parliament Square to try and get into Parliament to talk to politicians and say, what's the problem? They never got anywhere near Parliament because 5,000 police were on duty that day. A large number were on horses but there's probably about a 1,000 men in plain clothes who've been drafted in from the East End, policemen from the East End, used to dealing with violent drunks and thugs. And they're there wearing plain clothes in disguise because they're wearing badges saying Men's League for Women's Suffrage. So they're pretending to be supporters, but they're not. They're there to assault the women, to cause trouble, to behave in such a way that women won't go back and demonstrate again. On that day, 150 women were sexually and physically assaulted by the police, plain clothes and uniform. The injuries were so bad, you know, kicking and punching and hair pulling and clothes torn off. And of the 150 recorded incidents, 39 of them were for sexual violence. Police would take the women down side streets, sexually assault them, invite the crowd to join in. So it's a really shockingly bad day. And the outrage and the, the fear and the frustration spills out and there are four other riots the following week. So it's a really difficult and dangerous time. And some women suffered appalling injuries. And some of them wrote about the sexual violence and added their names to these descriptions and wrote to the Times about it, which was quite an, an extraordinary act of courage because they didn't know how that information would be treated by their family and friends and by wider members of the community. So it was, a, it was a tremendous sort of statement of courage. Mrs Pankhurst realised this was really dangerous. Somebody's going to die. So she said, we're going to go underground now. I'm going to wage guerrilla war against this government until they give us the vote. And from November 1910 until the end of the war, this country experiences nationwide vandalism and violence perpetrated by suffragettes in this guerrilla kind of warfare strategy. And it's very, very successful getting them in the newspapers. It makes them even more unpopular. Many of them are arrested and go to prison and serve long prison sentences. But it's part of this ongoing determination to not give in. No surrender was their slogan until women got the vote. It's really um, painful to listen to the sacrifices that these women made. And the more you learn about the horror that they faced, the more inspiring, frankly, their commitment becomes you know like you i can only imagine how desperate you'd be if you were denied of any control over your own life and left to watch others around you make the key decisions for you 
What's really impressive about Diane is that she's able to tell these really difficult stories from a place of respect and empathy and even fondness. People often say to me, who's your favourite suffragette? And I mean, it's so hard to pick one out. I love them all, really. Uh, I spent a lot of time with them writing this book, about four years, actually. So we're great friends. Um, This is Edith Rigby. And she was so amazing. She was so utterly focused and so unconventional. Uh, She didn't wear Edwardian fashion. She didn't like it. She didn't like corsets. She used to make her own clothes. She's really like the, the first hippie. They were very big, loose dresses that were highly embroidered and decorated. She made her own jewellery that was really just Edith style. Um, she wore sandals all year round. She smoked in public. And she was a complete, unique, free spirit. And she's devoted to working class women and getting them the vote. She'd bring them to London. They'd have all processions. They'd go to Parliament and got involved in all kinds of activities and trouble. She was in and out of prison quite a lot. And uh, Charlie Husband was just the best possible husband. He didn't ever, st- he didn't like her going on hunger strike. He didn't like her being force fed because that was extremely dangerous and, and terrifying. But he just supported her and he, um, he allowed her to live her own life and pursue her own dreams. And in the latter part of 1913, she's on the run from the police for about six months. She's in and out of prison all the time. She tried to blow up the Liverpool Cotton Exchange. She defaced statues of uh, leading sort of generals and, in Liverpool. And she went on hunger strike. And when you went on hunger strike, you were allowed to starve and you were fed by force. They didn't want anybody dying in prison of starvation. There were three ways of force feeding you. One was to tie you to a chair, tip your chair back, hold you down, four women would hold you down, and they would just put food into your mouth and stop you spitting it out. That was the least worst option. The second option was a nasal tube, which was a food poured down a funnel, down a tube. That might be milk, it might be raw egg, it might be something like bovril or something horrible, and that would just pour down the funnel, pour down the tube, and the tube would be inserted into your nose. Just not nicely, just rammed into your nose. And food would trickle down into your throat. The worst way, there was an even worse way than that, which was the stomach tube. Same idea, a funnel tube. And they would just force it down your throat. Often damaging your vocal cords. And they would just push it right to the top of the stomach. So it would just go forced right down. So the food is just being poured into your stomach. And some women were force fed like that three times a day for weeks at a time because they wouldn't accept the fact that the government wouldn't treat them as political prisoners. They were just being treated as common criminals and they weren't given the privileges of political prisoners. So that struggle was happening in prisons all over the country because there were so many suffragettes being arrested. Prisons filled really quickly and easily. So women were serving their sentences in in Manchester, in London, in, in Liverpool, in Leeds, in Scotland, in Bristol, all around the country, suffragettes were being bussed from London, serving their sentences there. So force feeding was happening all around the country. Edith had had that experience many, many times. But in 1913, the government started to get a bit of a pushback from members of the general public because this was torture. It was torture by no other name. So the government said, OK, well, we'll let you starve. And then we'll release you on a special license. And then you just go to that designated address. And then we will come and re-arrest you 
We'll weigh you, and if you put on weight, we will re-arrest you, take you back to prison, you carry on your sentence. So it's a game of cat and mouse, and that's where the phrase cat and mouse act comes from. So the government really honestly expected the suffragettes to go to this designated address, sit there and get well, recover, and just wait to be arrested. But of course they didn't do that, because why would they? So what happened was they'd recover... And then the other suffragettes, their friends and their comrades on the outside, would visit them. And within that group, there would be like a body double. And what happened was the the body double went in and the suffragette went out. They swapped clothes. And so many of them escaped from under the police. The police were outside watching 24 hours to stop that happening. But they hardly ever intercepted anybody who had swapped clothes. They got away, just walked past them, disappeared, went to different parts of the country, carried on with militancy, carried on smashing windows, carried on burning down empty houses, carried on attacking sports facilities, carried on attacking works of art, carried on, amazingly, burning down churches. So that was escalating. So the strategy of Uh, cat and mouse failed because the suffragettes kind of overcame that and some of them were so amazing that they were they were in that they were imprisoned for long sentences they escaped and they never went back to prison because they were constantly on the move using aliases wearing disguises just having the most incredible time having the time of their lives and this is what edith had been doing and she was in galway for six months and charlie didn't know where she was and a family friend went and said, oh, I'm really sorry about Edith. You know, she's being so difficult. It must be so hard for you. And oh, isn't she awful? And he said, I, I don't want your sympathy because Edith has the courage of a lion. And I must, I must back her because I don't have the moral courage that she has. So I must, I must do everything I can to support her. So that was, that was the kind of level of support that she had. And a lot of suffragettes had great husbands like that and supportive fathers who backed them all the way and encouraged them. I mean, they, they didn't do it lightly. They knew what they were suffering, but they felt it was important that their daughters, you know, pursued their political goals. Uh, the war comes along at the moment when it's really... Uh, the, the suffragettes campaign is, is really hard because the government's trying to strangle it out of existence. Venues weren't allowed to hire to them. Printers weren't allowed to print their papers. The police are constantly raiding their premises all the time, so it's very disruptive. The war comes along... And it's a national emergency. So the Pankhursts say, we're going to put this campaign on on ice for the war. We're going to get the war sorted. And then we're going to encourage all women to engage in war work so the government cannot turn around and say, no, women's suffrage. We have to prove to this country that, you know, we we, we we can step up when the country needs us. And then the government will have no possible excuse not to give us a vote. And that's really part of the story. I mean, the suffragettes had raised the subject to the top of the political agenda by their outrageous campaigning, and the war comes along, and all women, whether they wanted the vote or not, are unable to be part of it. And it actually becomes a very liberating experience to do war work because it changes their lives. You know, the genie's out of the bottle when women do war work, and they... You know, it's hard to put that genie back in again. So all women's consciousness has been raised and changed by the experience of war. And then some of them, over 30, will actually get the vote. And amazing, the first election, there are 17 women candidates because women are allowed to stand as MPs. So 
8.4 million women vote in 1918 for the first time, and they have 17 female candidates to choose from. Hooray. <laughs> and they used to meet regularly. They used to go back to Caxton Hall. They used to hang out, talk about the good old days, about fighting with the police and all that kind of stuff. And it was, a big, it was like a big social group. So it was a really, you know, the, the suffragettes had an afterlife. And meeting on a regular basis, talking about Black Friday, what had happened, talking about the vote, talking about what it meant, was a thing that kind of kept them together as, as a very strong and powerful kind of sisterhood until they died. And, um, you know, that was one of the strengths of this organisation because they'd been very tightly bonded together across class, across country, with all different life experiences coming together to fight on this particular issue to get women the vote. So please, everybody, make sure you vote. I'm sure I don't need to say that, but please vote. Thank you very much. Thank you. At this point in the event, Moya had the opportunity to ask Diane a couple of questions about how the suffragettes are perceived today. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the uh, kind of how the suffragettes are remembered now is that you kind of hear them criticised a lot now from certain quarters for being a kind of white middle class movement that wasn't diverse and that, you know, that it was all these women kind of out on a jolly. And that has become the prevailing narrative. And obviously your book shows that that's not the case at all. But why do you think that has become such a dominant narrative about them? Well, at the time, the, um, the newspapers loathed them, I mean, across the board loathed them. And they started this whole myth flying that it was only middle-class women, self-interested women, um, hobbyists, nothing better to do, who weren't interested in any other women. It was a very selfish project. So they, that's where it started. And most historians were happy to accept that. Mm the evidence just didn't stand up because it wasn't possible for this kind of organisation to be all around the country of a working class group not to be involved. But I think that's a sign they found it challenging, that there was this conversation, there was this solidarity between middle-class women and working-class women. And I think they tried to kind of unpick that and to underline the class difference when, in fact, that was something that the suffragettes were embracing and succeeding at at bridging all those gaps. So, yeah, I mean, they tried but failed, I think, to, to really drive that wedge between the women. This idea that working class women weren't involved, I think, in part, comes from the fact that a lot of photographs we have of suffragette events, big processions, big spectacular moments, it's middle-class women in lovely dresses with lovely accessories, fabulous hats, looking glamorous. But that's, I think, because the photographers have gone looking for them. They always pick the prettiest woman or the best frock. And I think that's skewed our idea about what suffragettes were like. There were working-class women there looking perhaps not so smart, but they were there. But the photographers aren't interested. They won't take their pictures. Mm. So I think the evidence has misled us somewhat. They were the original self-marketers, really. And reading about how they conducted themselves, but they knew how to kind of orchestrate events so that there would be a photographer from the Daily Mirror there, and they knew how to do these kind of set-piece events, which feels really modern. When I was reading about it, it almost made me think of, so what's happening in America now with, like, the Parkland students who know exactly how to... And they're facing, you know, huge huge opposition and really vitriolic personal attacks Mm. Um, and yet they're kind of always one step ahead in how they're 
shaping the media narrative. And they're really, really serious about what they, about what their cause is, but also they're kind of funny and witty and charming at the same time. And that was really, it just felt really, really modern. They were very media savvy. I mean, they would have loved Twitter. They would have loved Instagram. They'd have loved Facebook. They'd have been, you know, they'd have done all of that. One of their campaigns was called Pestering the Politicians, which was stalking, basically, but in a nice way. They would find out where the, the most fierce opponents of women's suffrage, which was at senior cabinet level, they'd find out where they went to church. So they'd just kind of mingle in the congregation and they'd kind of go and sit next to a senior politician. Because politicians then had no protection from the police, no security. So they'd go and sit next to him, pretending to be like just like a regular parishioner. When church was over, they'd walk out with them and they'd start haranguing them. When are you going to give women the vote? You know, Mr. Asquith, when are you going to give women the vote? And they kind of grab hold of their collars and just kind of do that. They would find out where they were playing golf and they would hide in the bushes and they would wait for them to kind of be teeing off or whatever it is golfers do and they'd jump out and say, Mr. Asquith, when are you going to give women the vote? So it's a bit like silent film, you know, like comedy, kind of slapstick. And, of course, politicians hated it. I mean, it's just so... I mean, it's kind of benign, really. Nobody got hurt. Not very much, anyway. And um, they're just so kind of jolly and amusing. But my favourite story was they found out that Asquith was going to have um, a weekend away in this moated um, castle down in Kent. And they worked out... They caught the plans. They knew what they were doing. Three of them arrived in disguise with aliases and they, they went to the local station and they walked from the station to the castle and they noticed a boat on the moat so they rowed it round they had climbing equipment with them they knew where the dining room was so they climbed up the castle wall they popped their head into the window of the dining room where they were having their port and whatever and they popped their head in saying Mr Asketh when are you going to give them a boat? <laughs> so you know I mean that's Awesome. <laughs> so, um, and then everybody is, goes insane, you know. Oh! And then um, they get down the rope quickly and they get in the boat and they row round to the thing and they just disappear into the night. It was tough being a suffragette, but it could also be fun. There's a lot of sort of social activity and kind of um, sisterhood building, if you like. I don't know about you, but I think there's something really creative and bold about the way that the suffragettes were protesting. You know, you can feel, even at the distance of a uh, hundred years, their good humour and wit in the face of what is actually a really serious and dangerous situation. And so, you know, maybe all of us, you know, when, when we're confronted with social injustice, which, let's be clear, is all around us, maybe all of us need to somehow keep a bit of a sense of humour, a sense of fun, and, you know, maybe it was that humanity that made the suffragette campaign resonate so strongly. There was an excellent question from an audience member about how the suffragettes might look at things now in light of things like the Me Too movement and the annual women's marches that take place across the world. They'd be so impressed at what women have done and can do and will do. They'd be pleased about that, those kind of milestones. But they would say, actually, you need to get this campaign going again. D's not words. You know, they say, no more talking. Let's just do it. They'd be disappointed about the equal pay thing because that was something they were campaigning 400 years ago, 110 years ago. And don't forget, the Equal Pay Act came out in 1970. It was supposed to be right across the board in 1975, and it still hasn't happened. 
They'd be very upset about the whole sexual violence thing, sexual harassment, because that was one of their issues they were concerned about. A lot of women came to the suffragette cause because of kind of Me Too sexual harassment. And they'd say, well, why is this still happening? But I think now, there's, um, when I give talks and go to different events, there's a lot of love in the room for the suffragettes in a way there has never been before. Through most of my career writing about them and curating exhibitions about them, there's been a lot of hate for the suffragettes. It's peculiar now because we, they're very much loved up at the moment and I hope they always will be. But there's been such hostility and prejudice about them. There's so many great case studies in their campaigning. I think we can learn so much from them. And I think we can be inspired by them and what they managed to achieve and what they gave in a very hostile environment. So I think we need to go back and, and think about their slogan and perhaps adopting that. Deeds, not words. Such a simple call to action that captures all the frustration, conviction and pure, rigid, brilliant focus of the suffragettes' campaign. There's certainly something we can all take from those three simple words. And what I personally found, you know, particularly fascinating about Diane's talk is the way she described how creativity played a big role in the suffragette movement. Out of sheer necessity, the suffragettes had to invent completely new tactics to get their voices heard and try and change things. And so whether it was innovative design or guerrilla-style protests... The suffragettes were a properly creative collective that were united by a singular, focused vision of equality. I'm hardly the first person to point out that protest has often sparked creative ingenuity. Just think of all the witty placards and great art used by protest movements over the years. Although it's definitely not pleasant, stress and conflict over the years has inspired and motivated campaigners in ways that stability and happiness often can't. Although it's not always an easy thing to acknowledge, some of humanity's greatest achievements have come about in the face of real adversity. No one wants to see oppression in the world, and you know it feels strange to be talking about challenges like this as uh, somehow driving creativity. But at the same time, it's clear from the amazing examples set by these women, the suffragettes, that out of really tough situations, impossible situations, people have an incredible talent to create and engineer and fight their way out of it. This programme was brought to you by Second Home and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Rohan Silver, and featured the historian, Diane Atkinson. This series is produced by Eli Block and Natalia Rodriguez, and the executive producer is Harry Watson. If you want to know more about Second Home, please go to secondhome.io.